Let's take our Bibles this evening, turn to Romans chapter 9, Romans the ninth chapter. Uh, a couple of weeks ago when we uh, met uh, in our study in Romans, we talked a bit about uh, uh, what this chapter does not talk about, although some people would try to uh, make it uh, into that. And uh, we saw that it's important to uh, know what Romans chapter 9 says and what it does not say. We looked at the erroneous doctrine of tulip theology or Calvinism. Uh, We said, uh, as we looked at that, uh, Calvinism is uh, used with this, uh, uh, the word tulip, each letter standing for another part of the teaching there, total depravity. Yes, we are totally depraved. We are sinners when we're born, but we're not, we don't have total inability, which is part of that uh, uh, teaching there. It's not that we're not able to come to, uh, to God. We can come to God. Uh, so uh, it's, it's more than uh, what uh, they're teaching there. Uh, unconditional election, no. There's always a condition, and that condition is faith. You're not going to be saved unless you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is a condition. Limited atonement, yes, Jesus died for all. It's not limited. Uh, All have sinned, and Jesus died for all. Uh, Irresistible grace, no. There are many who still are resisting the grace of God today. And perseverance of the saints, we do not persevere, but God does preserve. We are kept by his power. So we said that Romans 9 is often used as a text to prove Calvinistic doctrine. And tonight we're going to go back to Romans chapter 9 and see what it does say, remembering that we're in a section of Romans where Paul is basically addressing the needs of the law or of the Jew. But at the same time, there's a wonderful principles here for us to learn uh, from as well. Paul is dealing with the Jews in the Roman church. And some questions had come to his attention about their place in God's overall plan and purpose. Jewish believers were confused by the fact that in the church there was no distinction between Israelite and Gentile. And at the same time, Judaistic critics charged that if God had turned from his covenant with Israel, he was guilty of breaking his promises to them. And so in chapter 9, the apostle initiates his defense of God's right to set aside the nation of Israel for a time, and he's very concerned about the unbelief that's being displayed toward the gospel, and he has a great burden for them. Look at verse uh, 1 through 3 here. It says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now we want to look tonight at the sovereignty of God. And so first of all, God's sovereign favor is displayed. God's sovereign favor is displayed. Let's look at verse 4. Who are the Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises? Whose are the fathers and who of whom are concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all, God be blessed forever. Amen. Now, 
This really kind of goes back and reviews our earlier study in this passage, but I think it's important for us to review it. Uh, If you'll remember, there is a number of wonderful gifts that God has given to the nation of Israel. Uh, He lists them here uh, in verse 4. There's the adoption uh, is given. Now, in the Old Testament, God refers to Israel as his son. And so there is the adoption. And then it says, and the glory... You know, the physical presence of God in the tabernacle, as you recall, in, in looking at the tabernacle and at the temple, God's presence was there. His glory was there, his Shekinah glory. And then the covenants, there were promises that God made. He made them to Abraham and to Jacob and to David and, and so forth. And there was the law. That is uh, the Mosaic law was given to the nation of Israel. Uh, then also in verse 4, it says the service of God. This had to do with the worship that took place in the tabernacle and the temple. And then lastly, the promises. And of course, the Old Testament abounds with promises made to these people. And so this was a special covenant relationship with him, and they were considered to be his people. They were considered to be God's people. All of the Old Testament prophets, all the prophecies were given to them. All the promises concerning the Messiah and the coming kingdom were given to them. The people of Israel had been given more light than any other group in in the world. Yet they became so bogged down in the letter of the law and the religious rituals, they missed their Messiah when he came. And so we have God's sovereign favor was displayed to the children of Israel. Secondly, we see God's sovereign freedom exercised. Now, having shown that Israel is indeed God's elect nation, the uh, the apostle anticipates an objection. Some would be unable to harmonize Israel's spiritual priority with the quality uh, or the equality of Jew and Gentile in the church. Uh, what about the many promises made to the nation of Israel? Uh, Will God break those promises? And Paul positively says the Lord's word will stand. And so we see here in verse 6, in verse 6, he says, Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, but they are not all Israel which are of Israel. The apostle is demonstrating God's sovereign right to grant the fulfillment of the promised blessings only to those natural descendants of Jacob whom he chooses. That is, to those who meet his spiritual qualifications. Not all the posterity of the patriarchs are Israelites in a true sense of the word. The apostle illustrates this by appealing to certain well-known facts from Israel's history. Notice, first of all, his In his choice of Isaac, verse 7, neither because they are seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Every Israelite knew that Ishmael was the son of Abraham and Hagar, and that Keturah bore Abraham six sons. However, though these descendants receive certain blessings and inheritance, they're not included in the spiritual privileges of the covenant that uh, was granted to Isaac. And the Lord did not exclude Ishmael and the sons of Keturah from the possibility of salvation through faith, but he did set them aside 
in separate national groups without the unique spiritual insights that he gave Isaac. God chose to carry out his special covenant uh, promises to Abraham through Isaac and the supernaturally conceived son of, uh, of Sarah, that is Isaac. Now this illustration shows the fact that not heredity is the uh, eternal principle of of sonship, but faith is the uh, eternal principle of sonship. It's by faith uh, that uh, they come, not just because they're born into a family. That's true for us today. Just because young people or children are born into a Christian family does not mean they're automatically Christians. Just because you as an adult was, were born into a Christian family. I had a wonderful Christian family. My dad, my mom were saved and, but that doesn't mean I was saved. There came a point in time that I had to make that decision and place my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as well. That's true for all of us. Now in verse eight, it says, that is, they which are of the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. These children of promise are those who, like Abraham, believed God. In the giving of spiritual blessings, the Lord operates on the principle of faith rather than in just national descent. Just because a person is a Jew doesn't mean he's automatically going to be saved. He's got to place his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's got to put his faith in God. Therefore, God has a sovereign right to postpone the fulfillment of his promises to Israel as long as the nation continues on in unbelief. So we find his freedom exercise in his choice of Isaac. Secondly, in his choice of Jacob. Verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Again, here are two boys having the same parents, conceived at the same time, and yet the younger was chosen before his birth to be the, a place of spiritual priority over the elder. God made this choice before a, a, uh, Jacob had demonstrated faith or any other spiritual quality. He determined to make Jacob, not Esau, the channel through whom he would work out his covenant promises and bring salvation to mankind. You see, the words here, it says here, the elder shall serve the younger. That refers to Israel and Edom, the nations that descended from Jacob and Esau. It refers uh, not to the men themselves, but the nations uh, that came from these two men. The Edomites, for example, on several occasions served as slaves for the Israelites. And then the phrase, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated, in keeping with the accepted usage of the day, indicates that God saw fit to honor Jacob and his descendants over Esau. And the offspring of Jacob, not Esau, became the vehicles to whom the Lord spoke his word and through whom he would, uh, he would know the truth. Again, we need to remember that the election that's referred to here in these verses is not a choice for eternal salvation or perdition. 
but God's determining of the role that individuals and nations would have in this earthly life. Salvation was available for Esau and any of his descendants that were willing to put their faith in God. However, the land of Canaan, the law, the tabernacle, the temple service, and yet the unrealized promises of the national blessing and priority, those reserved for Jacob and his descendants. Doesn't mean that Esau's people couldn't have been saved. They could have put their faith in God too. We also see God's sovereign freedom exercised in his dealings with Israel and Pharaoh. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Now the third illustration of God's right to exercise freely his sovereign will involves Israel and Pharaoh. The Lord showed mercy to an undeserving nation of Israel, but through judgment he made an object lesson of Pharaoh. Israel's grievous sin in making and worshiping a golden calf, that is, imitating the vile idolatry of the Canaanites, deserved dreadful, uh, serious punishment. But God in mercy withheld it. Shortly after that event, Moses, with the memory of his people's sin still fresh in his mind, asked the Lord, show me thy glory. Exodus thirty-three eighteen. But before answering this request, God declared to Moses the words quoted here in verse 15. It says, for he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Israel had no right to claim God's mercy, but the Lord graciously displayed his long-suffering and patience. Look at verse 16. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Now Pharaoh, on the other hand, tasted God's righteous wrath. Uh, Pharaoh, the Egyptian king, had been treating the Israelites, who were his slaves, in a cruel and heartless manner. And when Moses said, let my people go, but Pharaoh refused as God through Moses and Aaron began to work miracles of judgment upon the Egyptian people. And Pharaoh became more determined than ever not to release the children of Israel. Now, if you go back and you read Exodus chapter 7 through 11, you see Pharaoh's character there degenerate as he stubbornly resisted what he knew to be God's will. And therefore, God cannot be charged with acting arbitrarily or with by making Pharaoh a mere pawn in a chessboard of fate. God had the unquestioned right to place him as the king of Egypt at that crucial time and to make him the object lesson demonstrating what happens to one who stubbornly resists God. Now, uh, I might say, you know, that sometimes people do and perhaps you've known somebody that's just continually, stubbornly resisting, 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 and God sends his judgment upon that person because they just will not give in. Now, verse 17, it says, For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy upon whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he, who he will, he hardeneth. 
See, God is not acting unjustly when he shows mercy to an undeserving people as he did to Israel or displays his wrath as he did with Pharaoh. And I think that's something for us to remember. And I mentioned this uh, uh, earlier uh, in our uh, some of our studies. God is working. God is still working even through uh, people that we think are, are the wicked people of this earth, the wicked rulers of this world, earth. God is still working and God is still in control. Uh, we can sit in our homes and we can wring our hands and we can say, oh me, oh my, what are we going to do next? There's so much terrible wickedness going in on this. No, we just need to put our faith in God, trust him that he knows what he's doing. And God's going to use even that wickedness to, to bring glory to him. And so we see God's sovereign freedom exercised in his choice of Isaac, his choice of Jacob, and his dealings with Israel and Pharaoh. But then, fourthly, we also see it in vessels of wrath and mercy. And though the sovereign God hath been long-suffering with Pharaoh, he nevertheless had not dealt with him as mercifully as with Israel. And so Paul imagines his opponent saying, well, uh, look here now, look in verse 19. Thou wilt say, he's, that's what Paul is saying, he's imagining his opponent saying, Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Then verse 20 says, Nay, but, O man, who art thou who repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay and the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another to dishonor? So the apostle here uh, applies uh, uh, by replies by declaring that even the clay cannot question the potter's choice to make a vessel that will serve some lowly person so man had no right to uh to to god uh, had no right to god to account a potter has the right uh, to design the vessel for either ornamental purposes or maybe a trainer a container of trash you know, you can make the, the vessel be something beautiful that you put flowers in, or you can make it something that's just kind of ordinary that you throw your trash into. Uh, God has the right to give some people more privileges and opportunities than others. Now, it's been a while, but I used to do some of this kind of work here. Uh, when I was studying art in college, uh, I uh, took pottery classes, and I, I, I threw some, uh, some pots, is what it's called, throw some pots on the wheel. And you sit there and you form that, and and, uh, and there, uh, it's a wonderful. Thing. And then I was able to teach. Uh, now this is this is a uh, you know takes a lot of grace and a lot of uh, courage. But I used to teach this to junior high kids. Okay, uh, so you can imagine what happens with clay. You know, for with junior high kids, of course they always kept it very neat and they always kept it very you know uh, in place. They never threw it against the walls or anything like that. But uh, it's it's a uh, it's kind of interesting uh, uh, that this is the illustration that Paul uses. It was God's prerogative to act in judgment when Pharaoh continued his rebellion, um, but to withhold punishment from Israel. He had been patient with is uh, with Pharaoh, but he finally used him as an example of wrath and power. Pharaoh, through the hardening of his heart, became a vessel of wrath fitted to destruction. Look at verse 23. It says there, and that he might make the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he hath afore 
prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And so the vessels of mercy are they, uh, both Jews and Gentiles, who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And there again is the condition for salvation. It's faith. It's not where God said, okay, those people over there, they're going to be saved. Those people over there, they're going to go to hell. No, the condition for faith or for salvation is faith. Uh, Don't take a despairing view that some people have been predetermined to eternal uh, perdition. Now, that's not, that's not what he's teaching here. The Bible nowhere indicates that God has predetermined anyone for everlasting destruction. Now, we could say he's predestinated in the sense that if they don't put their faith in God, then they're going to be, uh, God's predetermined that. But he didn't say, well, you're going to heaven and you're going to hell. I've already settled that. He gives everyone the opportunity to put their faith in him. And so uh, he did predetermine that if anyone does not put their faith in him, they did not believe in him, there would be everlasting judgment. And you've got to remember that when you talk about this idea of predestination or predetermining, when God... Yes, he predetermined. He said, in, you know, if someone does not put their faith in me, then they're going to have an everlasting judgment. Your life is not under control of some vengeful deity or blind fate. You are a moral, responsible being created in the image and likeness of God and the object of his love, and you have the opportunity to trust in him. Put your faith in him. And so some... Vessels are vessels of mercy. They can be used. Others are marred. And uh, they're, they're only uh, because, and the, yet the condition is faith uh, in, each, in each case. That brings us to, thirdly, God's sovereign fellowship desired. Now, what have we learned thus far? Well, we've learned that the Bible clearly teaches that God is in control. God is in control of this universe. Uh, he directs the affairs of men to certain uh, uh, goals, and he even permits uh, evil to play a part in his overall program. And so, as we continue here in Romans nine, in the last few verse or the first few verses of chapter ten, notice with me a couple of things here. First of all, the choice of the Gentiles, the choice of the Gentiles, verse twenty-five, as he has said unto uh, said also in O.C. or actually that's Hosea. That's the uh, uh, New Testament word for Hosea, O.C. I will call them my people, which are not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of a living God. God not only chose a nation and not only saved those in that nation who turned to him, but among the Gentiles, he's calling out a people even until today. That was prophesied in the Old Testament in the book of Hosea. O.C. is the Greek name for the prophet Hosea. Now, this here is a quotation from Hosea 2 and verse 23, and it refers to the nation of Israel. 
Peter refers to the prophecy to the believing remnant in his day, which perpetuated the nation to his people who turned to Christ. He said in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light with which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which are, had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And then the second prophecy in verse 26 here is from Hosea chapter 1 and verse 10, and refers to Gentiles any place on this earth who turn to Christ now and in the future. We also read in Acts chapter 15 and verse 17, uh, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom thy, my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all things, all these things. You know, God has reached into various places of the world. He's reached into Europe. He did not send the gospel into Europe because the people were superior. Now, some have thought that, you know, that they're a superior race and so forth. But that's not why he did it. He just he sent some the gospel into Europe. And once again, that's a part of God's sovereign plan. You know, I'm glad he sent the gospel into Europe because my descendants are from Europe. Or my ancestors, not my descendants. My ancestors. Get that right there. Before or after. Because even some of those people there from uh, Europe had the gospel. They brought... They came over to the United States, and the rest is history, right? So, Hosea. We also find there, Isaiah is mentioned here and, uh, and quoted. Verse 27, Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel, through though the number of children of Israel be the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. Verse 28, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. Here he's quoting Isaiah chapter 10, verse 22 and 23. Only a remnant of Israel will be saved uh, in the great tribulation era, uh, period. Uh, now, I don't know how many will be saved after the rapture during the tribulation, but I do believe there will be some. Uh, I also believe that if someone hears and rejects the gospel before the rapture, they will not be given a second chance to receive Christ after the rapture. But that's kind of getting into something else we don't want to get into tonight, okay? Uh, but we do know that there will be those who will be saved. Why, how do we know that? Well, it's because of God's mercy. If he saved only one, it would still reveal his mercy because none of us deserve his mercy. Then verse 29, it says, And Isaiah saith, said before, except the Lord of the Sabbath, hath left us a seed, we had been as, as Sodom, and been made like unto Gomorrah. Here he's quoting Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 9. Uh, it's a startling statement, but it's fitting climax to the so sovereignty of God here. Even the elect nation would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah in depravity and rebellion to God if it had not, he had not intervened in his sovereign mercy and recovered a remnant. And then that brings us to the offense of the cross. When God made man, he had made him in his own image, and he loves him, and he desires fellowship with him. And people are not helpless pieces in a game that God is playing, and he's just moving people around at his, at his whim. 
uh, they are lost by divine decree, but rather uh, uh, they are not lost by divine decree, but rather they are lost because they find the gospel offensive. And therefore they deliberately misinterpret it and they reject it. They don't put their faith in God. Now why is it that the gospel is offensive to some people? Well, Paul gives us two particular reasons here at the end of this chapter and the beginning of the next. He says, first, uh, the destruction of human pride. Man has always wanted to believe he would build a ladder to heaven by his good works. Some think themselves morally worthy of eternal life on the basis of their conduct. Many, many people, religious people, are, are operating on that basis today. Others have looked to the faithful observance of religious ritual. If I just do these rituals, then I'm going to make my way to heaven. The idea of works achieved salvation is direct contrast to the gospel, which declares that every person possesses a sinful nature, and therefore the best deeds are still not good enough because they're imperfect. Every one of us stands guilty before God in the need of forgiveness, and there's only one way to get that forgiveness, and that's put our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this doesn't go over too well with the self-righteous religionist, and that's why some of the most intelligent, well-educated, so-called good people of a community will reject what we're talking about tonight. At the same time, the most wicked and the most godless have embraced it. Look at verse 30 and 31. What shall we say then, that the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? But Israel which followed after the law of righteousness hath not attained to the law of righteousness? When the good news was preached during the first century, many Gentiles who had never had any interest in obtaining righteousness, they believed the message of salvation. But the Jews who had strenuously sought to obtain righteousness before God, they didn't achieve it. And the reason here is given to us in verse 32 and 33. Wherefore? He's asking a question. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by what? Faith. They sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Again, he's using words from Isaiah. Isaiah 8, verse 14. Isaiah 28, and verse 16, in which the Lord promised Israel that during the approaching Assyrian invasion, he would be a sanctuary, providing safety for those who would trust in him. He would be a rock upon which they would be able to stand secure and not be ashamed. And yet God warned those who trusted in the pagan deities or in their treaties with the heathen neighbors that it would be a destructive obstacle to them, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And so Paul's applying these words to his readers here. And Paul declares that Jesus Christ has become a stone of stumbling to the majority of the Jews. And the word he uses is a word that means to be offended by or annoyed with. The message of the crucified Savior and the teaching that they were sinners on the same level as pagans, well, that would upset them. And it's the same thing that upsets many churchgoers and religious people today. 
They know nothing of faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And they think all their good works and their regular church attendance or even their occasional church attendance uh, will be good enough to get them to heaven. You see, the to accept the fact that we're sinners and we need a Savior, well, that is destruction of human pride. And most people operate on pride. And so we find here uh, the offense of the cross, its destruction of human pride. Secondly, its demand for a new loyalty. Say, having shown that the message of the cross is offensive to religionists because it humbles them, Paul proceeds to point out that the gospel is also objectionable to them because it's demand of total commitment to Christ. Faith in Christ cannot be just added to the existing religious form or ritual, but it must include a renouncement of former methods of seeking to gain favor with God. And that's what I I was been talking about this morning as well. Too many people are saying, well, there's a sacred part of my life and there's a secular part. I'm just going to add Jesus to my secular part and then I'll, I'll be okay. You know, I'll just add some religion, uh, some, some, some good things to my life. But I'm still going to keep my old life. No, we've got to renounce the former methods of gaining to seek favor with God. We've got to have a total commitment to Christ. And during the apostolic period, many involved in Judaism who turned to Christ found this a very difficult demand. Paul, who had once been a very strict Pharisee, he understood their problem. He recalls his own strong loyalty to Judaism and the deep feelings that drove him on in his early efforts to destroy the church. He too bruised himself on the stone of stumbling until he surrendered to Christ when he gave his life totally to Jesus Christ. And he expresses strong concern for, again, his people. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they are, they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. He shows that he loves them. That he has compassion for them. He acknowledges that they're earnest. They're zealous. He declares that they are attempting to be right with God, but they're using the wrong methods. Israel had been seeking to earn salvation through works instead of recognizing that God graciously bestows forgiveness and acceptance upon those who trust him. Ah, there's that condition again, the condition of faith. Paul indicates they misunderstood the real meaning of the law. The law was to reveal man's deep sinfulness it was to reveal his the man's utter helplessness to obey god perfectly and his need for god's gracious forgiveness but israel's religious leaders had developed it into a work system designed to earn salvation and having hurt themselves at the stone of stumbling that is christ the people of israel were guilty of setting their wills against god refusing to subject themselves to his plan And they had an intense loyalty to the traditions of the fathers. And it became a strong hindrance to their acceptance of Jesus Christ. And their rejection of Christ was a tragic mistake and made against against overwhelming evidence. 
And they continue, even today, to oppose the gospel in spite of the undeniable fact that Jesus Christ conquered death and the overwhelming evidence in lives of transformed believers. Now, I hope you've been able to, in these studies, particularly here in chapter 9, see what it is saying and what it is not saying. It's not a defense for the idea that God selects some to go to heaven and he selects some to go to hell. That's not what this chapter says. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now that does away with a lot of this, well, some are going to heaven, some going to hell. You know, God's already determined that. God, or Paul, had a tremendous burden for the lost. He had a burden for both the Jew and the Gentile. God, in his sovereignty, had given the Jew many great blessings, but the greatness of all was, greatest of all was for them to admit that they were sinners, they needed a Savior, and they would not do that. But if they would, he would save them along with anyone else who placed their faith in Christ. We need to have a burden for our loved ones, for our neighbors, those we work with, to come to the Lord. And I trust the Lord willing, next time we'll look at God's wonderful plan of salvation in Romans chapter 10. Let's pray.